it's just gone 12.30 here on the eastern seaboard of Australia. Anyway, and I'm coming to you live from the Fat Cave. Yes. And today, of course, something is different. It's Something's changed between us, hasn't it? And it's because I'm rocking the dome. Most people think I'm incredibly insecure about being bald, and it's not that at all, you know. It's just that... If I wear my baseball cap with the non-specific C on the top so that, you know, ordinary people can just infer this and that about me, uh, as is their want, it, it means that when I'm walking around home and I walk past a mirror and I glance out the corner of my eye, I don't see my father looking back at me. That, that's really all there is to it. But I am rocking the dome today for a specific reason, a PSA of sorts. Like Wednesday morning, okay, 815 I'm in the skin doctor's office and she's like spraying all over my face. I'm having the liquid nitrogen facial again every year. I mean, you should do it, dude. It's emotional. Once a year, that's all it takes, you know. I mean, Jesus loves Australia. That's pretty clear because of our prodigious UV radiation. And it just keeps heaven stocked with fresh souls but it doesn't have to be your fresh soul okay so once a year just go to the skin doctor and have the frozen facial dude that's all it takes keep getting all these things burnt off all down here right and it's because of driving because you sit on the right hand side of the car and you're up against the right glass and or the wrong glass in the case of the side glass of most cars which is a crap UV attenuator, I have to say. The windscreen, not so much because it's laminated. It's got a polycarbonate layer in between the glass and it's a really good attenuator of UV radiation. But the side glass, not so much. Bit of a sobering reminder anyway. So if you are not going and getting yourself sprayed with the liquid nitrogen once a year, it could be you keeping Jesus so happy about Australia. Now, not here to talk about that, but I just thought I'd, I'd rock the dome for a change as a PSA and admonish you to get yourself checked out because, hey, occupational hazard if you drive a car in this country where seemingly everything can kill you, even the sun. You know, the beach is not safe, the sun's not safe, Dingo Piss Creek is not safe, nothing is safe. And that's why I've got my high-vis glasses, you know. It's the only thing standing between me and danger here in the Fat Cave. Here to talk about the new Serato. So, I broke with tradition and actually went on a launch earlier this week and it was everything I remembered, you know, the obsession with calories and all of that stuff. Um, I want to talk to you about this car though because it's actually a really solid proposition and many people in my view who buy an SUV for at least $10,000 more are really are ripping themselves off and look, if you've got the ten grand, that's fine, okay? Like knock yourself out, you really want an SUV, hooray. Yeah, hooray for you. But if you're really on a budget because your wife's got a bun in the oven for the first time, you're a brought you're a brought to breed and you need a bigger car. You need, in inverted commas, a bigger car, then I got a report coming up about the dimensional differences between Serato and SUV without letting the cat out of the bag there. Let's just say that cabin space and luggage space is near as damn it exactly the same. Okay, it just is, dude. And a lot of people make this determination about needing a quote-unquote bigger car without actually looking at the specifications or the dimensions, getting out a tape measure or anything of that nature, and they kind of rip themselves off. 
the fashion is certainly SUVs, but if you're on a limited income and you're about to breed, I would suggest that a car like the Serato is just fine. And with that in mind, let's just have a bit of a look at it, in particular with the cargo space, which is a bit of an obsession when it comes to you know breeding and upgrading the car, primary motivation to own a new car. This is the hatch, obviously. You can have a sedan as well. And uh, this is with the seats down. Obviously, you don't have to have both the seats down. If you're spitting out a child, you could just have the seat on the left folded up. And you've got a pretty solid cargo area for all of that stuff that you need to carry around if you're a parent. And let's face it, having been there and done that thrice, I'd have to say that the amount of logistic crap you have to carry around is inversely proportional to the age of the kid right when they're about 10 they don't need anything they just jump in the car and go but when they're like 10 months old you get really fit lifting stuff in and out you certainly do but anyway that's that's kind of what we're talking about here today and the Serato is has always been a pretty good car and it's a great value proposition especially in light of the SUV paradox which is you pay 10 grand more and you really don't get that much more space. Although you do get to keep up with the Joneses up and down the street, don't you? Because that's where the fashion is. Anyway, Kia has done just an awesome job here in Australia limiting their press release on the Serato to just eight pages. Just eight. That's amazing being able to cram it all into just eight. It's here. And if you'd like to follow along, I have put a download link in the description right now. You can just go there and download both this press release and also the specification sheet so you can just check it out on the way through as we go. Now, the ground rules for this is uh, we're about five or six minutes in already and I'm going to go till about 1.30. So we'll do about an hour and please do feel free to just... Uh, jump in with the chat if you want a particular question answered I'll do my best to multitask here which is a thing men are just so crap at but I'll give it a red hot go and I will try to uh, keep up with the chat as well as get through all of this stuff so I think Key has done a miraculous job also by getting two words in without making a single mistake I don't know if you can read that from here you probably can it should be in focus three words in not so much okay Refreshed Serato Heroes New Kia Branding. It heroes it. From that verb, which doesn't exist, to hero. To hero your way through life. Dudes. Hero is a noun, like you can be a superhero or just a regular hero. You know, dude steps out with a, with a knife and invites a young lady to hand over her handbag. You could be a hero, but you can't hero your way through that situation. You can't have a conversation that goes... Yeah, dude, we're in bed. And then her husband came home and I just heroed myself out the window. It doesn't work that way. Hero's not a verb. It's just not. There is a new badge, though, and that's kind of interesting. And I hated the new badge. Originally, they did this whole hoopla about here's our new logo. And I thought, oh, Jesus, a two-year-old with a crayon and a set square did this. I'll give you a look at that, too, so you can make your own determination. I think it looks just a whole lot better in the flesh on a car. I could live with that. And in time, this will be the pro tip, okay? If you see this logo on the snout or the ass of a Kia passing you in traffic, you will be able to say that this is a model year 22 plus 
Kia, right? So model year 22 vehicles will incrementally start bearing this new badge and that's how you will be able to tell that it's not an MY21. If you're perhaps looking for a used Kia down the track a couple of years, you'll be able to instantly tell that this is MY22 or later if you see this logo. And one of the things I find absolutely fascinating about cars and car manufacturers, not just Kia and not just the Serato, but check this out, okay? The thing that I don't get is that they don't have standard typography for the brand. Like, they don't have a standard font. Nobody does. It's only, like, the make, model, and the variant, okay? That's that's all there is here, okay? So, Kia Serato GT. There's your Serato. Here's your GT. And here's your Kia, okay? And they've all got different fonts. And I find that just tremendously inconsistent across the entire automotive industry none of them ever go hey let's strive for consistency you've got these dudes you know like peter schreyer who runs the whole design apparatus for hyundai care and not even he has sat down one day and while scratching his ass musing about what next he's never said let's stick with the one font so that people just look at it and subliminally they say that's a kia right they don't do that and i i just don't understand why anyway you know, it is a pretty sharp-looking car, and they've done a really good job, okay, with uh, sexing it up. The hair and makeup, really nice. Nice obsession with LED lighting across the range. You get that front and rear. You're looking at the GT, which is the range-topping jigger, but uh, you get a pretty high spec level right across the range. And I suppose what I should do at this point is talk to you about the things that I find pretty interesting about the Serato. It's like there's uh, there's the S and the Sport and the Sport Plus in one camp over here, and then there's the range-topping GT over here. And they really are chalk and cheese. They're completely different cars, and you'd want to know that going into the dealership. Because if if you want something that's half-hot, and I'd suggest here's the definition of half-hot, okay? It's not like a hot hatch, like an i30N. That's a completely different sort of kettle of fish, right? But... It is half hot and you can have a real red hot go in it and feel quite satisfied driving the GT. It's a really sporty thing. It's got a 1.6 turbo petrol engine with direct injection and that's mated to the seven-speed dual-clutch transmission, which is Hyundai Kia's dry dual-clutch transmission. And before you go, oh my God, dry dual-clutch, I'm not going there. That transmission has been deployed for ages now. It's quite reliable. There's no problem with any of that. <laughs> Dry dual clutch transmissions do go poopy in their trousers, but principally if they've got a Ford badge on the front or Volkswagen. So there's kind of that, and both of those brands have done a great job, in my view, putting a dent in the reputation of dual clutch transmissions. And just to drill down on that momentarily, okay, a dual clutch transmission, like everything else, is a good news, bad news story. And the good news is if you are up it for the rent and you want seamless shifting, downshifts with rev matching on the paddles and all of that kind of stuff, and hey, who doesn't? Dual clutch transmission, ladies and gentlemen, better than a manual, faster than a manual, more time with actual torque from the powertrain being delivered to the road. Okay, that's what that's about. But in traffic, in some situations, they do dither about a bit when the future's not quite so clear-cut and the computer can't really see ahead. 
so there's that. And the other big advantage, though, is that a dual-clutch transmission has the fuel economy of a manual because there's no drive being lost as, as you soak up sort of feedback effects through a torque converter as there is in a conventional automatic transmission. So you save 6 to 10% on your fuel on the way through, which is friggin' awesome, and nobody ever says, oh, I'm really loving the fuel saving. They talk about, you know, lack of low-speed refinement, and they bitch and moan about that. Well, dude, if that's really an issue for you, then don't buy the GT. Go and buy one of the lesser model variants of Serato because that'll give you a 2-litre... Uh, direct uh, two liter MPI engine, the multi point, the old kind of fuel injection, and it'll give you a six speed conventional automatic transmission, which will have other things about it that perhaps you don't like, like they're not as fuel efficient and they don't shift as fast when you're having a red hot go, but they don't have the problems that are on the negative side of the ledger that go with the dual clutch transmission. So there's that. And I'd have to say also that I don't know if you saw my interview with Graham Gambold. Uh, it was a particularly long piece. It's the last pre-recorded video that I published. Okay, so you can go and check that out if you want. But in that particular report, Graham Gambold went into all of the different, all of these nuances about suspension tuning. Kia does an excellent local suspension tuning operation. They do it on a bit of a shoestring, but they do a good job. Okay, and those two different camps of Serato have completely different characters when you drive them. I, I tried to split my time up driving the GT and either Sport or Sport Plus on the drive program, and they're totally different cars, okay? If you're thinking conservative family car that does everything adequately and doesn't really shine too hard dynamically, then any of the S Sport, Sport Plus variants, fantastic at that. Okay, But if you want something that's really engaging dynamically, like from a suspension dynamics point of view, the GT. They are tuned completely differently. The GT's got bigger wheels, lower profile tyres. It's got a different suspension tune and it's much more engaging. Not quite hot hatch, but certainly warm hatch. And you can have real fun tipping that in on a windy road. And we did that a bit on the drive program and it does certainly satisfy and if you're wondering about the uh, 1.6 turbo engine and you're an old fart like me who should be going to the friggin' skin doctor once a year and having his face frozen off, then what you really need to know there is that that 1.6 turbo engine gets out of the blocks with 150 kilowatts, okay? And I don't know if you remember the very first Holden Commodore back in 1978 before the internet, shortly after the extinction of the last dinosaur, right? Everyone raved about that car. It was the next thing. It was the successor to the Kingswood, such an icon. All right, the Commodore gets out of the blocks. It comes with the red engines, the red motors, okay? It's got the 3.3 straight six. It's got a 4.2 V8, and right up the top of the range, out a 5-litre Atmo V8. Remember that. Overhead valves, quadrajet carburetor, and... Uh, Turbo Hydro 400 automatic, right? And that was a real performance thing, and everyone lusted after that. Do you remember that? If you're as old as me, you certainly remembered that. When that car got out of the blocks, I hoped I was old enough to drive it, right? I was too young to get a license at that stage, and I was gutted because I so wanted to drive the 5-litre V8, having been a car nut since I was about that tall. Anyway, that 5-litre V8 engine... 114 kilowatts count them 
114. 1.6 turbo in a Kia, 150. Dude. And the cars are roughly the same size. Actually, the Commodore was slightly longer because it had to package a six-cylinder engine. And packaging wasn't such a thing back then. You didn't have to get all the clearances down to virtually zero. So it's about 200 millimetres longer than the Serato, that very first Commodore. But the Serato is actually wider and also taller than the very first Commodore. So when you look at anybody talking about Serato, okay, they're likely to say, it's a small car because that's the industry designation for this kind of car. But what we've actually had is like 40 years of incremental growth of small cars. And take Corolla, for example, they've had to get a Yaris and just slot it in underneath because of the middle-aged spread of Corolla. And same sort of thing with cars like Serato. They need Rios and that slotted in underneath them so that people who want a properly small car can actually go down and buy a small car. So if you are in the market, right, and you want to save a bit of money and you want a vehicle with the cabin space of an SUV without the price tag, then you are essentially not trading anything off on a Serato. And I admit that if you've got a bung hip or a bad back or something of that nature, you know, you were crushed by a forklift when you were working on the factory floor all those years ago, or you've got multiple sclerosis or some terrible disease, then an SUV can make sense because of the highest seating height, which is roughly standing hip height, okay? That is a real thing, and that does make ergonomic access easier in those limited number of circumstances. But if you're basically an able-bodied dude or dudette, a car is going to be just fine, and you're not going to trade anything off. So I'll just have a look at the chat and see if anything interesting has come up. And bear in mind, I'm doing this in real time. So if someone says something inappropriate, I'll probably just dump it. Um, well, Best Family Cars. Now, Best Family Cars is a dude I know. He's, he's getting in there answering on my behalf. So thank you very much, Scott, for that. Um, Daniel Perez says, uh, I've got a model year 19 GT, dual clutch is brilliant. So far, the only issue I've had is LSPI, LSPI, mm, drawing a blank there. After short drives during COVID, John is right regarding servicing early if doing short trips. Yeah, you got to do that. Absolutely. And I find the dual clutch transmission great as well. It's particularly good downshifting under pressure on the paddles. It really is seamless and makes you feel like a racing driver, even if you can't heel and toe. It's exactly that kind of downshift experience. And then you can get your kid and shove it in the car and go back to driving using the transmission in a fully automated way. And Mum and the kid will never know you've just been having a red hot go on the way back from Bunnings or things of that nature, okay? Uh, let's go to Michael Anthony now. I oh, know this is a conversation between Scott from Best Family Cars and Michael Anthony, and I'm not going to wade in on that. Uh, Jamie Clary says, seriously considering the GT version, I've been in a Megane GT for a few years. Will I get the same va-va-voom? Va-va-voom. Renault Sport is almost like Hyundai N or BMW N, uh, M, sorry. So that's a, that's a step up in the warmth domain, I think. Like Serato GT is a warm hatch and it's very satisfying to drive. And I'd suggest that if you do like having a red hot go on a public road, there's not much in it, okay? And in many cases, I think, you know, people obsess about cars like Golf R's, 
i30Ns and things of this nature, BMW M whatever, which is another step up again. And that's really just a bragging right thing. So if Vavavoom means going fast from A to B and you're really interested in being able to do it on a time basis and sounding good, then Serato GT is fine because most people driving all of these kinds of cars don't have the driving skill to drive them at the limit of their performance. There's always latent performance in the platform, right? And if you do have that skill where you can drive a car like a Serato GT at the limit of its performance, it's generally irresponsible to exploit all of that on a public road anyway. So for having spirited driving on a public road, you really don't need to go much hotter than Serato GT. And you also don't have to deal with the bad news story of uh, owning a proper hot hatch would be, A, cost of insurance through the roof because half of the people crash them, right? And the other half of them get stolen. And then there's the other aspect, which is that they're just crap to drive in traffic. They're unpleasant. They're not crap. They're just unpleasant to drive in traffic really hot hatches, right? They thump over bumps and they do that because they're optimised for that sort of really near-the-limit engaging driving. And if you optimise for that, then obviously you are not optimised for just getting stuck in traffic, which is, hey, it's like the cost of doing business in the Western world, right? You are going to be stuck in traffic, so you really want to love what's good about your hot hatch because you are going to have to live with what's wrong with it, which would be its you know ride quality and traffic and things of that nature. So let's keep going now with some of these comments. Um, uh, Tilzy23, I'm, I'm amazed that there are 22 other people in the YouTube ecosystem calling themselves Tilzy, but anyway. Tilzy goes... Only thing I don't like about the DCT is when negotiating shopping centre car parks when in second gear, the computer is reluctant to downshift to first when doing those low-speed manoeuvres, it will shudder. Yeah, and just to drill down into that, A, you could use the paddles, dude, and just lock it into first and drive like that, and that would overcome that problem, so you're welcome. And the second thing I'd suggest is that dual-clutch transmissions don't do what you can do. Right, because when you're looking at the road, you can see what happens next, and a dual clutch transmission can't do that. It's got a computer that looks at inputs, okay, and it can only produce a picture of what's next to the extent of the clarity of the information coming into that computer and the programming, okay. So, if you're up a car for the rent and it's doing 5,000 RPM wide open throttle, the computer goes, and you're in second gear, the computer goes pretty sure I'm going to need third next and it pre-selects third and then just goes bah, bah, and then you're in third when you need to shift up brilliant right and the same thing for downshifting under pressure because if you're doing if you're hard on the under the brakes you're off the gas entirely and the revs are dropping rapidly and you're in fourth gear you're coming down from about I don't know 100 to 80 k's an hour the computer goes pretty sure I'm going to need third you know so it pre-shifts into third and then you just get this downshift into third. It's brilliant. But in traffic, you don't get that sort of driving. You get this sort of on the gas, off the gas, dithering around, and you can end up in situations, and in car parks, same thing, right? You can end up in situations where the computer goes, oh, you accelerated a bit, we're in second, I'll pre-select third, and then you get off the gas and you slow down rapidly, and third is pre-selected, and the computer goes, oh, it's FFS, dude, make up your mind, because then it's got to go back and waste all this time getting out of third in the pre-selection domain and jumping onto first, right? 
and this is this dithering that is the price of admission to Club DCT. All right, they all do that, and it's just like being married. Transmissions, just like being married. All right, if you're married and you want it to work, and Christ knows I've had five ex-wives, I can categorically tell you what doesn't work and by omission therefore tell you what does work you've got to learn to live with the positives and not obsess about the negatives transmissions exactly the same if you want to remain happily married to your serato gt or whatever so um ghs 77 now ghs 77 has been such a regular on this channel i do love him in an entirely platonic way he's always on about the shirts he's that dude right Nice gay jumper, John, three exclamation marks. I don't know why the three, dude. Come on. Like, it's not more shouting with three. It's just not. And jumpers can't be gay. And I always wear my jumper when it's as cold as a politician's friggin' heart here in the fat cave under the shirt. You know? Can you see this shirt all right? Can you? It's not working very well then, is it? Not doing its job. Now, RJJF. RJJ favourites, sorry, these names. Like, come on, these fake names. Who really needs one? Says, hi, John. Love the live stream. Looking for a new car, half hot. Uh, Serato GT is on my list. Any others you would suggest under 50 grand? Must fit wife's wheelchair in the boot. Well, I'd be going with a hatch because you'll get that split fold thing with the seats and uh, there's no portal. A lot of sedans often have the portal in between the cargo bay and the seat area and for versatility with the wheelchair then i'd suggest a hatch is the go and really my short list of hatches like that is pretty short it's like mazda 3 you know mazda 3 anything with a 2.5 liter engine like an astina or a gt that's pretty good and you could also look at the hyundai equivalent of serato with Kia dudes will hate me saying that, but the i30 N-Line, they're essentially derivatives of the same platform. So you could think of it like this. In engineering terms, same car, different hair and makeup. But I'd be looking at those and making a decision from there. And then I, I think you can still get a manual with the i30. Don't quote me on that. I'd have to check and research, dude. Who's got time? But you can look and then just make a decision. The big difference with the Mazda is obviously it has an epicyclic auto like a conventional automatic transmission. So, you know, that might be more up your alley. It depends which kinds of transmission behavior you prioritize as an advantage. Up it for the rent and fuel saving versus refinement in traffic. If you want the refinement in traffic, epicyclic auto is still a superior option. There's no manual with the new Serato, so there's that. Uh, let's keep going with some of these comments. I do like the interaction. So, look, if you are jumping in on the chat, I thank you sincerely for giving up an otherwise perfectly serviceable sort of uh, Friday afternoon on, you know, almost one o'clock. So there's that. I do appreciate your time, and I'm trying not to waste it here. It is a little bit difficult to fill up the comments and, and talk at the same time and make sure the audio and the video is still working and the live stream is not falling over. But hey, aside from that, no pressure. It's just like radio, except uh, no ad breaks to go for a pee and no news on the hour. There's that. Guitars rock forever. And I must thank you forever, GF forever, GR forever, about... Uh, for being such a long-term viewer of the channel. I see your comments in almost every video, and I sincerely thank you for your interaction there. Uh, Guitars Rock says, last time John had seven XY... 
last time John had seven ex-wives. So what happened to the other two? Well, I'm just saying what happens on Poontang Island stays on Poontang Island, dude. Uh, what happened to the other two since there are only five now? Dude, that's a, memory's so fallible. There's only ever been five ex-wives. I know them all in exhaustive detail. Such a burden. Anyway, uh, I'm hoping not to make it six. I was going for double digits at one stage there, but the pain, I mean, tolerance for pain, we've, we've each got a threshold, and I think I'm at my ex-wife tolerance, frankly. There's that. Lee James says, John, how do you feel all these new cars' longevity with all the complex computers and such uh, compares to 90s and early 2000s models, right, uh, with an electronic degrade in those, a fewer electronics? People have got the wrong idea about electronics in cars, and I think you might be one of them, Lee. My strong take on this, and I'm giving it to you as an engineer, is that electronics have made cars more reliable overall. Because you think back to the 70s when there were no electronics, right? Push-button radio was as advanced as it actually gets, all right? Cars shat themselves all the time, dude. They were just busily shitting themselves at the side of the road continuously, overheating the points would malfunction. You needed to adjust the points every three months. FFS, who's got time today? You know, if you had to do that with a modern car, like, had to go to a dealership and have a mechanic with a feeler gauge adjust the timing. Like, come on. Electronics has made cars more reliable because the ignition timing is electronically controlled now. And the conversations between the computers are so sophisticated, right? Like, you think about something simple like an upshift in an automatic transmission, DCT, whatever, okay? The transmission control computer sends an SMS, I'm paraphrasing, to the engine control computer and says, dude, dude, you got to shift up. I'm about to shift up. And the engine goes, yeah, yeah, dude, I can see that. What I'll do is, the instant you shift, I'll just retard the timing a bit and throttle back, just for a couple of milliseconds to take the shock out of the shift. So you can shift as fast as you like. And that, and no one will ever know, right? And these conversations are happening all the frigging time. There's a microphone inside every modern engine, and it listens for knock. That's all it does. And it says to the ignition control part of the algorithm, advance a bit, advance a bit, dude, like advance, more advance, more advance. And then it detects knock and it goes, oh, Jesus, back it off a bit. And engines do this thousands of times every frigging second. Okay, they just go for it and you don't know that it's happening and it gives you fuel economy and better performance and smoother operation and all of these things. Okay, and computers hardly ever F up in a modern car. They hardly ever do. Okay, and, and, and they do, obviously, because nothing is totally reliable, right? But overall, electronics has made cars much more reliable. They're called facts, okay, and not everybody has to agree with that. But, hey, it's the truth. The bad news part of this story, because there's always a bit of balance, right? Good news, bad news. Cars have become more complex, and complexity is the enemy of reliability, okay? The only way you can make more complex systems reliable is to do appropriate R&D, okay? And we see this stuff all the time when it falls over, like you get water into something and something goes wrong, and, you know, the, these models are renowned for a problem with that, and those models are renowned for a problem with that. The other thing about complexity is that diagnosis of problems can be harder, okay? So... 
when people say electronics has, have made cars less reliable, that's unambiguously crap, all right? But it has gotten harder to get to the bottom of problems, and the problems when they do occur are just more of a pain in the ass to solve. So there's that. I would rather have the most modern car. And without wanting to dwell on this for the rest of the live stream, I'm reminded of a, a really pivotal moment in my life as a young engineer, right, when I went to a lecture that was delivered by Chuck Yeager, who was retired from the US Air Force at that time, but he was a guy who diced with death infinitely and survived. And he was also the first guy to break the sound barrier, and most people don't know, but he was an ace in World War II, flying a P-51 Mustang. And for the first part of his uh, his lecture, he spoke at length about flying in the Mustang and greying out in the turns because of the positive G and the blood coming out of your head and blah, 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 waking up and seeing where the other guy was and all of this stuff, right? Edge of the seat stuff, if you're into that crap, okay? And we got the opportunity to ask him questions at the end during the book signing and uh, I did ask him about how the Mustang compared with all of the more modern planes that he flew and uh, I pointed out that I was a motoring journalist and he said it's just like cars. Son, he said, it's just like cars in that sort of Arkansas drawl kind of thing that he typically speaks in and he said it's just like cars. The best car is the newest car. Same with planes, you know. So you can have this romanticised sort of rose-coloured glasses looking in the rear-vision mirror on cars. Weren't they so fantastic in the past? Just look at that very first Commodore, dude. It's slightly smaller in length and width than a Serato today. And the 5-litre V8 made 114 kilowatts, whereas a 1.6 turbo engine today makes friggin' 150. Like... There's no suggestion, there's no, there's no way you could win an argument that cars were better then. You could be rom more romantically attracted to them back then, but certainly not, uh, certainly not in an objective way. You can't make the case to me that cars were better back then. They were far less safe, they were far less refined, they were far less reliable and they didn't go as well. But aside from that, you know, two thumbs up. Let's keep going with some of these questions. Lance Armstrong says, hi JC, why doesn't anyone do anything creative with plug-in hybrid electric vehicles? Surely the internal combustion engine only needs to be small, run at one speed, and only charge the battery, i.e. not be connected to the drivetrain. I don't agree with that, Lance. This is off the track a little bit, but happy to go there. For starters, I think plug-in electric hybrid is... I was having a very interesting chat, he won't mind, with Damien Meredith, who's the Chief Operating Officer of Kia a couple of weeks ago about plug-in hybrid because the Nero is coming in with those three powertrains, pure electric, normal hybrid and plug-in hybrid. And he was saying to me that the biggest challenge with plug-in hybrid is the communication of the complexity. Like, why would you bother kind of thing? Normal hybrid, dead easy. EV, dead easy. Plug-in hybrid, really hard to get across given the attention span of the average person, okay? In a marketing sense, right? But I'd say that plug-in hybrid is a perfect bridge between internal combustion and EV for Australia at the moment, okay? EV might be better in future, but for regional driving, it's a pain in the ass to the extent that you have to plan logistically, like where am I going to recharge? Sydney to Melbourne, you have to think about where to recharge in the way that you don't if you drive internal combustion. There's more than enough 
fuel stations on the way for internal combustion, right? And plug-in hybrid bridges that gap because you can just drive at low loads and low speeds around town and then you need to drive several hundred kilometres one day beyond the range of a conventional EV. Just make sure the tank's full of fuel and you plug-in hybrid and just drive, right? And just rock it like that until you get back into plug-in wherever, okay? But as for using the internal combustion engine to recharge the battery, that is such a dud proposition from an engineering point of view because of the second law of thermodynamics, right? Every time you do a process, you lose available energy. That's kind of what the second law says. So if you burn fuel to drive the wheels through an engine, that's like one process, okay? But if you burn fuel to drive a generator to charge a battery to drive the wheels, that's like three processes so the available energy drops and because you're doing hybridization principally for the energy management and the the better result from a to b using less energy to do the same work kind of thing it's a dud idea to do that and the other reason for only it's a dud idea for having an electric uh, powertrain and an internal combustion engine just to drive a generator and not the wheels is the size of the electric part of the powertrain that you would need to do the job. So when you look at any plug-in hybrid, like the Outlander plug-in hybrid or the BMW 330e or the Nero, I think with all of those cars, certainly with the first two, I haven't really had too much of a look at the Nero at this stage, but it's got to be that way, otherwise the weight would be out of control. The internal combustion engine drives the wheels at times because otherwise, just to get adequate performance out of the electric part of the drivetrain, it would need to be substantially bigger, all right? And that's essentially why we have plug-in hybrids with powertrains going from internal combustion engines to the wheels, right? That's, That's just why they do it that way, because you can think you get the first 60Ks or something, which is in the ballpark of typically what they give you but you don't actually get that all the time in EV mode because if you demand too much performance out of the plug-in hybrid the internal combustion engine kicks in and it sends drive straight to the wheels right because it's got the ability to do that whereas the battery and the powertrain in a plug-in hybrid is simply not big enough to give you the full range of performance. It doesn't give you the top bit of performance. Anytime you make excessive demands, the internal combustion engine kicks in, and that's why it has to be connected to the wheels. I hope that answers your question, mate. Uh, Cade Cooper says, a bit late, but finally caught you live. Cheers. Thanks for the entertainment. No problem. Like, I really enjoy being live, and I wish you could take calls like uh, used to on Talkback Radio. That would be awesome, but by the same token, in Talkback Radio, of course, you've got a dump button. You've got a seven-second delay, and anyone who says anything inappropriate, you can just dump it, and then it's just like it's flushed down to the deep ocean outfall without going live to air. And that's kind of a good safety net to have because even here on YouTube there are standards. They have uh, they call them community guidelines and I'm not allowed to breach them. There can be sort of serious ramifications for me if I do breach them. And I sincerely try not to uh, without... <laughs> I also try to be entertaining and there's always that balance, right? Because things like jokes, there. show me the joke that's inoffensive to everyone, for example, doesn't exist, right? Uh, I try and be as entertaining as possible 
while still working in within the box of uh, YouTube's community guidelines. But, Kate, I'm, I'm super glad you've caught up with a live stream. You can, of course, just go and watch them retrospectively. But thanks for taking part. Thanks for being in the chat. And if you're new to the live stream and you're wondering what we're talking about, we are actually talking from time to time about the new Serato, which was recently facelifted. I've put a link in the description, okay, for the official press release, which you can see here about the Serato heroing the new Kia logo, etc., and other salient facts. You'll be overjoyed, for example, to know that uh, Sounds of Nature is now a salient feature of the new Serato. That's the uh, endless water dripping, waves crashing, walking through the snow, uh, birds chirping in the forest, and also, of course, busy suburban cafe. They've got that in Sounds of Nature. I'd humbly suggest to the person who named this system that cafe is not part of na nature, it's part of society. So there's that. It's like heroing the new branding, really. So at least there's some consistency across the naming conventions in the whole deal. <laughs> That's uplifting, isn't it? I wonder if the dudes from Kia will be talking to me after this. I don't know. Maybe they'll join the majority of car companies who do not. Will I care? You can decide for yourself. Anyway, Michael Anthony now. Hi, John. My mum's got a 2016 Volkswagen Golf TSI. Mate, I'm so sorry to hear that. Like, nobody deserves that. Uh, and it's just been diagnosed with a fault that's well known that has nothing to do with her doing. Her warranty went out in 2019. Any suggestions? Okay, Michael, consumer law works like this, all right? There's this thing called a consumer guarantee and one of the consumer guarantees is acceptable quality and that in part means that the things you buy have to be reasonably durable and that is irrespective of the warranty that's offered okay and that's reasonable durability in the context of the nature of that device and how you've used it so if you've abused it by not getting it serviced and it fails prematurely then that's kind of on you and that makes sense, okay? But if you've just driven the car normally and had it serviced on time and some critical part goes poopy in its trousers prematurely and prematurely in the context of what a reasonable person might expect from a product that cost about that much and was treated with due care by its owner, then Volkswagen or any other car company is required to offer you a remedy, okay? Which would generally be repairing it for free and I have noticed uh, many dealerships across many brands and many brands themselves preying in my view on ignorance about consumer law broadly in the community now we've had these consumer laws in place since the 1st of January 2011 and there's no excuse for you out there in consumer land not knowing them so when you go to the dealership or your mum, you go with your mum like a good son, you want to stay in the will, you go there with your mother and they, if they give you any crap about oh, the, warrant, oh, the warranty, you know, you just say, let's say the transmission's gone poopy in its trousers. You go, dude, the car's been serviced properly. Transmission should last longer than 80,000 Ks or seven years or whatever it is under the uh, consumer guarantee of acceptable quality I expect a remedy in the context of just give me a free repair or replace the transmission. I don't care, but I'm not paying for this because legally I'm entitled to this remedy. 
And then you're telling that by using these key words, consumer guarantee, acceptable quality, remedy, words like that, you are telling them that you know the rules of the game. And when you know the rules of the game, they generally go, you know what, I can't prey on this dude, I might have to do the job properly. So give that a crack, son, and let me know how you go. Best of luck, because your mum deserves a, uh, a decent crack at it. Every consumer deserves a decent crack at it, right? By the same token, a lot of consumers, I've noticed, are abject bullshitters and they abuse the crap out of their car. They don't get them serviced for three years in a row and then some critical component fails and they get all indignant, like, this car's been a POS, right? It doesn't work like that. If you abuse your car, it's going to be impossible to cover it up, okay? So if it's on you, then you've got to cop it on the chin. And then I guess what you've got to do in this situation is just go down the track of which camp am I in? Am I entitled to a remedy or am I not? And if the remedy is super expensive at the dealership, go and look in the aftermarket industry. Go and see an independent mechanic who knows about Volkswagens or whatever and see what sort of price they'll do the job for, right? Because often they have uh, lower overheads and they could just do it better and cheaper in many cases. They're in the business of diagnosing older cars and fixing them and people are on a budget and they appreciate that. And the whole reputation of an independent mechanics business rides on the fact that they fix your car and save you dough. So that they're kind of motivated to do that in a way that a car dealer isn't because this is like a windfall for them potentially. So just to have a crack at all that, please uh, just bear in mind all of those things that I've said and just try and steer your mum down the path of you know, the, the, the most efficient, uh, cost-effective remedy to this problem, okay? And good luck with it. I appreciate you listening to the live stream too, mate. Thanks. Okay, Aussie Inferno here, obviously um, obviously a Dante fan, says, Hey, John, have you had the chance to check out the i30N DCT? I've been taking a look at hot hatches recently and every man and his dog has a Golf GTI or R wanted something different, loving the content. Okay, I uh, I can tell you that I did manage to slip my RS very briefly into a test mule and I got to do the most demanding thing of all time with the i30N DCT, okay? And that would be I reverse parked it on a steep slope, a ramp in the Hyundai car park. That was all I was allowed to do with it. It wasn't registered, couldn't drive it on a public road. It was just there and... This is the real test for i30NDCT because my prediction there, and I have nothing to base this on except, you know, if, they, if it's not like this, they've really gotten it wrong, is it's going to be red hot around a track. It's going to be red hot at having a go on a public road. It's going to do all those things that DCTs do really good, okay? And it's also going to be quite durable because it's kind of the same transmission, as I understand it, in the Santa Fe Right, So in a Santa Fe, it's got all this extra lard that it carries around up a hill in traffic or whatever. And my understanding is that uh, that transmission, I can't remember if they designed it for the N first or the Santa Fe first and just decided to flip it one way or the other. But anyway, we've seen it deployed in the Santa Fe now for a while. It's carrying hundreds of kilos of additional lard because Santa Fe is a heavier proposition and PS it tows whatever Santa Fe tows, like two and a half tons or something, and it's got to do that reliably. So when you put that transmission into an i30N, it's going to be really hard to overload it in traffic, right? 
So it's going to be really hard to warm it up and cook the oil. It's a wet clutch transmission anyway, so it's got plenty of durability. I did an extreme test on the Santa Fe DCT here in the driveway leading up to the Fat Cave, which is like north face of the Eiger. I had 10 cracks up and down the driveway, and then I filmed it, so I had another 20 cracks up and down the driveway to film it, and couldn't even get it to sound hot. No warning lights, nothing. So it's very durable at that. So the one remaining question mark for me with i30N DCT was, can it have reasonable refinement doing something that DCTs hate, which is reverse parking gently up a hill? So I just sort of simulated that in the parking garage ramp between two of the parking levels, and it was really good. Okay, so I have no doubt. And that that car had had a hard life too because test mule. But... It was really good, so I have no doubt that in service it's going to be as durable as the rest of that car. And I stand by what I said about i30N when I first drove it, which was that the brake durability of that car is absolutely outstanding in the way that it is not in many other competitors, including the GTI, right? So on a track, you'll be able to brake all day long with an i30N and drive home in the way that you will not in many other cars that just kill the brakes. So I would buy an i30N uh, way in advance of a Golf GTI every day of the week just for that superior engineering and the fact that Hyundai doesn't throw you under the bus if you've got a problem. So there's that. Okay, let's keep going. Isaac Norton says now, I was in the workshop getting my Kona serviced on Tuesday and saw an N-Line Sonata of all things. Do you have a review of that roadmap? No, I don't. I can't be, I can't be asked reviewing the N-Line Sonata because my review is this. Yeah, great car, dude, but no one's going to buy it statistically. Some people are going to buy it, but it's just in that segment that... People don't buy cars in that segment because by the time you've got enough money to buy a Sonata N-Line, everyone, and I do mean everyone, goes there and, and they just buy an SUV. So from my point of view, it is actually very resource intensive to spend three days filming a car and doing all of that crap that you have to do with a review, scripting it, cutting it, posting it, going out on location with the car, driving across town, picking it up. All of the, and dropping it back, hopefully intact, all of that stuff. And there has to be some payola at the end of the day. And the payola would be getting uh, vehicle purchasing inquiries. And there's just not the market for vehicle purchasing inquiries for a car like a Sonata, as there would be if they did, I don't know, Tucson N. If they did a Tucson N-Line or something, not just the N-Line pack, but a real sex up, then, yeah, the, I, I'd review that. I'd be... I, I'd be you know, getting a, a death squad from Mossad to assassinate any competitors who are ahead of me on the queue for that one. But Sonata N, not so much. Anyway, let's keep going with some of these uh, question marks here. Uh, Smadge One says, I'm glad that when I leased my current car, the leasing company was able to pressure the dealer into funding some out-of-warranty repairs under Australian consumer law. So you can get this done, Right. And, and you shouldn't even have to. You know, in, in my view, one of the biggest differentiators between brands, one of the reasons I recommend Kia, I recommend Hyundai, I recommend Subaru, I recommend Lexus, Toyota. Toyota's the king of mediocrity, but at least they do the right thing by their customers. You know, you can recommend these brands, BMW among them, because they look after their customers when there's a problem. 
out of warranty, if it's a legitimate problem, you don't have to do the whole friggin' pantomime. You don't have to do the threat. You haven't got to write a letter. They just go, yeah, that shouldn't have happened. We're going to fix it for you, generally. Certainly by the time one of these problems floats itself up to the head office level, because it's really hard for car companies to control 20% of their dealers who are still cowboys sort of thing, because they're franchised, right? But by the time it gets to head office level up here, those frowns go upside down with those brands. And it's amazing to me that this is a primary differentiator between different cars and different car makers in the 21st century, because... Some of the brands dragging the chain on this, in my view, you know, uh, Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz, Ford, brands like Jeep, certainly, brands like that, they just have to look around and go, you know what, this is all short-term gain because we are terminating relationships with customers who would otherwise be happy if we just turn their friggin' frown upside down. Like, dude, how hard is it, right? Okay, so uh, Stendek Stretcher. Really interesting name, Stendek. I've never had a Stendek on the show before, so welcome and thank you for taking part. Uh, just booked my 98 Corolla into the main dealer, cheaper than the Independent at 500 bucks for a new timing belt. Still feeling it. Oh, what a feeling. Yeah, look, Corollas go forever. They're, they're one of those, they're cockroaches, won't they? After a nuclear holocaust, you'll still have every Corolla will be operational. Camrys are a bit like that too. Just ask taxi drivers. What an accelerated life testing regime there. Just look at all those hybrid Camrys out there on the road being driven like that endlessly by dudes categorising, like tarring everyone with the same brush here with no mechanical sympathy. Throttle might as well be an on-off switch. And they still run. Ladies and gentlemen, hashtag Camry for reliability. Camry for the reliability win. <laughs> Not that inspiring to drive, but anyway. Sean M. Wright says, Hello, John. Have you heard anything about the redesign coming for the 2022 Subaru Impreza? No, deafening silence on that front. But I'd be looking forward to Subaru getting a little bit more excitement into the range, right? Like, I've got a Forester at the moment. I've been driving it since Monday, and it's a lovely car. It, it is. It's got a CVT. Once again, good news, bad news story there. Good news on the fuel economy. Drones a bit and revs a bit high in some situations, but mm, I can live with that. You know, it's a, it's a nice car. It's got nice low sills. This is a real point of difference, right? You can look around like this and actually see the outside, whereas what I notice with other cars is that the sills are creeping up like this and you almost periscope up to check out the outside. So that's a point of difference. But they don't have a Forester XT anymore. And, you know, it's really hard to get an exciting Outback. You can get an adequate Outback, one that's even slightly better than adequate. You know, fully loaded, the two-and-a-half-litre engine's okay. It, it's okay. But for those small percentage of people who really want the halo car with the additional performance, they've cut back on the XT, they've dropped the 3.6R from the Outback range, let's hope that any redesign of Impreza includes some engine that you could go, you know what, that's halfway to a WRX. Yes! I really wish they'd do that. That seems to be Subaru's prime deficiency at the moment. It's like they went to the doctor one day and they just had all of the excitement burnt off their face. If you missed the first bit of the live stream, you're wondering, what the hell am I talking about? 
You know, I'm talking about you not getting melanoma, dude. It's that simple. Uh, Mike Wood says, Hi, John. I'm a dinosaur with a 2015 VF Calais 6-litre. In your opinion, is the Stinger GT Twin Turbo a comfortable replacement for my Calais? Yes, it is, dude. It really is. Stinger GT is a bona fide grand touring car, and it may not go quite as hard in a straight line in some situations. I'd have to do actual research, but probably not quite as hard in a straight line. But because of the twin turbo, it's got plenty of mid-range mumbo, so there's that. And, of course, what's your your 2015? So we're talking about six years' worth of superior technology. That's certainly worth something as well. So, yeah, I'd suggest if you're happy with your Calais um, V8, then you'll certainly be happy with a Stinger twin turbo. And the biggest problem you'll have is, you know, the length of the list that you have to get on between ordering one now and buying one because that's still a salient feature of the market and stinger is one of those cars that is profoundly affected and you might also notice if you're shopping around for a new car between now and the end of financial year like good luck with that and one of the the salient features of the market is that the higher the spec level the longer it's likely to be down there until you can get that car. And that's simply because these delays are as a result of the semiconductor shortage, like the computer chip shortage. And the higher the spec level, the more the computer control of the greater number of systems in that car and the longer the list is going to be between now and fulfilment. So the Stinger is one of those vehicles where there's a bit of a waiting list, but it's going to be worthwhile. And realistically... Stinger for, let's say, I don't know, 60 grand or something like that. And the next step up is another 20 grand and you'll have to buy something like a, a BMW 440i X-Drive or something of that nature. And it's not going to go as well as the V8, but it'll be superior in other respects. But 20 grand more, it's still a bit of a hike, isn't it? Now, we're coming up for 1.30. I'm not going to go much longer than an hour with this one, because every time I go for longer than an hour, someone goes, oh, your live streams go forever, like Jesus. I would point out just before we go, and I will answer a couple more questions before we go, so hang on there in the chat. Um, I will point out that this did start out to be an assessment of the new Kia Stinger, this official press release and the official specifications are in a download link is in the description of this live stream. So just get on there from the YouTube platform, download that. All of the salient information is in there. Like the price is kind of interesting to me. $36,990 for the works burger of Serratos, the Serato GT, a properly engaging, more than half warm, more than lukewarm hatch, okay? You can have a red hot go on a twisty road and feel pretty good about that in this car. And compared with an SUV, like, dude, it's going to be $15,000 cheaper than an SUV with an equivalent spec level, okay? So there's that. If you're lovely wife has a bun in the oven recently and you're thinking about upgrading from a Yaris or I don't know something like that definitely think about a Serato instead of an SUV because your income's about to get cut in half right but you need a bigger car than a Yaris to do all of that logistic this and that Serato is gonna be perfect look at the dimensions download the specs look at the dimensions Find the dimensions of a car like a CX-5 and be amazed at how the interior dimensions really aren't that different except for the height, the least useful dimension for carrying all that crap for your kid, okay? There is that and it will save you substantially. 
I'd love to uh, also thank you if you donated during this live stream. I just noticed a couple of they flash up in fluoro from time to time. Mark Valmy, I hope I haven't mangled your name, Mark. Uh, thank you very much for your kind donation. Also, Mal and everybody else who has managed to donate during the live stream. I'm not here so that you can donate a little bit of cash, but everything that you do donate, I will tip back into production values for the channel so that I can deliver more things of this nature. I'd love to know also if you like these live stream formats that kind of, they start out wanting to go down here and then they go over here because of the chat and then we go, we do a bit of a U-turn and uh, then we come back here behind me and do a handbrake turn and go all over the shop and if you like that kind of completely misdirected uh, format of this live stream, let me know. We'll do it more often. It'll be emotional, right? As uh, as they said in that Vinny whatever said in that movie. Anyway, now uh, let's talk to Matthew New now. He says, is the waiting list for Jimny still 6 to 12 months? Yeah, I think it is, dude. And at the end of that, you'll end up with a Jimny. So there's that. Um Tone now. I do like Tone, and I have to thank Tone for being such a regular commenter and also for being such for being one of those commenters that you have to try to keep up with. I do like that. I love trying to keep up with people. Do you reckon that Dacia, Dacia, tomato, tomato, is a realistic chance for being launched in Australia next year as per recent media reports? Well, you could have a red-hot crack with anything, but I think the biggest impediment to launching a brand now would be if you got no stock and it's going to take six to 12 months you'd wait for this incredible unprecedented inversion in the market to be resolved because having stock would be absolutely critical to getting the job done and uh, we won't know until they telegraph it in a in a, a more direct way and I'd suggest that you could do the planning now, but until you know when this semiconductor shortage is going to be over, then that you'd have to just stick it in the pending tray. And every every brand that could look at launching in Australia is that. And look, the other thing is Australia is already such a congested market. And by that, I mean, look at the number of brands, 50 or 60, whatever it is, it's up and down a little bit like the proverbial, but the... Um, and then look at the sales volume. So you've got 50 or 60 brands competing for roughly a million sales. And when you look at the economics of that compared with North America or one of these other big mature markets, you'd have to, where they've got fewer brands competing for 10 times the number of sales. When you look at the acquisition cost per sale, like this is the kind of boring economics that car makers do. They go, well, how much is it going to cost me to acquire one new customer if we launch this brand in Australia, right? And the acquisition cost is really high because of the marketing spend per sale in the way that it's not in America or Europe or things of that nature, the United Kingdom, whatever. So that's a real impediment to the launching of any new brand in this market. And that's probably the, the biggest hurdle for any brand to get through. Uh, you know, there's already such congestion and you've seen brands like Sanyong and Great Wall. They've been here for years and they still fail to kick a goal. And I suspect that if we'd had a less congested market, this may not be the case. Certainly they've shot themselves in the foot a bit, both of those brands. But they've also, you know, structurally there's an impediment because of the, the large number of brands and the small number of sales per brand. 
And finally, Ricky says, hi, John, what do you think about the moves the New Zealand government are making on going after petrol-powered cars in New Zealand? No YouTubers in Unzad will reply to this question. Yeah, I don't know why there's such a reluctance to just say what you really friggin' think in the media or on YouTube or any of these platforms. Like, I'm here standing in front of you now and... It just gobsmacks me that one of the unique selling propositions of my brand is I just don't bullshit you. You know, I say what I really think. If Volkswagen's crap at customer care in Australia, I just say it because this has been my first-hand experience. Same thing with Mercedes-Benz. Like, dude, they are. So I don't know what the impediment is. Well, I do know what the impediment is to saying it, but... I don't know why you wouldn't prioritise your audience over other commercial interests, let's put it that way. So I think going after petrol-powered cars and supporting EVs and all of this palaver, I think it's all a bit of a sideshow because fundamentally we have to be in a, a situation where we have to evolve quickly into an economic framework where market forces dictate exactly which powertrains proliferate, right, into the future. So it's good to have an economic framework, like a fundamental economic framework that incentivizes good choices and disincentivizes bad choices. And if you want to make an environmentally bad choice, let's say bad equals environmentally bad, okay? If you want to go and buy a 7 Series because it's got a V12 engine and all that space and you're sufficiently rich to do that, then at least you will be penalised to the extent that the extra taxation that you pay, for example, big fat S class, whatever, the extra tax that you pay gets pushed, gets put back into balancing the ledger back up environmentally. Okay, so that to me that makes sense. But what I see here is a whole bunch of I see a whole bunch of uh, initiatives like the one in. Victoria, which is just insane. In one hand, on one hand, we've got incentives for the first 20,000 buyers of cheap EVs at the same time as we're going to be putting a road user tax in place without any consideration for the extra amount that the EV buyer has already paid in tax by virtue of the fact that his EV cost 50% more and therefore he paid 50% more GST and he also paid 50% more stamp duty on that vehicle and things of that nature. There's no balancing of that ledger. And these political douchebags who just go in and, and jump one way or the other on the basis of industry consultation or without having a single technical expert, like an independent technical expert, I'm talking like a professor from a proper university, come in and talk about environmental issues, air quality, things of that nature, what we could do to boost air quality in our cities, which would be a principal reason to get into EVs or plug-in hybrids, for example. Like, why would we want to disincentivize them by putting a road user tax in place? FFS, pollution from internal combustion cars, kills more people prematurely than the road toll. So why would we not want to turn that frown upside down given the incredible obsession in the road toll, with the road toll, right? You can get any politician you want to say the road toll is out of control and they do that principally to justify this jackbooted obsession with speeding, right? Because speeding makes money and the road toll can be used as a lever. Do I sound like I'm getting on my friggin' high horse? Anyway, 
Air quality, poor air quality, kills more people prematurely than the road toll. This is a scientific fact. And yet, none of these douchebags voting this way or that for this EV tax or that EV tax or for this incentive or that incentive, none of them are going, oh, well, we've had expert consultation on air quality and the improvement that we can expect over the next decade and the reduction in mortality and morbidity as a result of that. I'm not hearing any of that. I'm hearing this bullshit argument that EV owners should not get to use the roads for free, okay? And that is just such emphatic bullshit in my view. And look, with that, given that I have detained you on a perfectly serviceable Friday afternoon for one hour, seven minutes and 22 seconds, I'm terribly sorry, although your family will thank me because you have not inflicted yourself on them while you were locked down, allegedly working from home. You know, I have detained you, I fear, for long enough and more would be excessive. I will endeavour to live stream more. Let me know if you want that or not in the comments or the chat because, you know, a bit of feedback one way or the other would be excellent. Is there anything I've done that sucked during this live stream? Let me know because, you know, it's hard to edit yourself while you're pressing the buttons and changing the scenes and doing everything of that nature. New Serato, I... I don't give cars numeric scores like that's such bullshit. They're always between 6.9 and 8.5, aren't they? You know, I give this 6.9. What's the context, dude? Like, it, this is every other review site ever. New Serato is definitely a starter if you're looking to upgrade the size of the car you've got now for something slightly bigger and you think you need an SUV because dude you really don't it'll do everything that a medium SUV will do for an average breeder with a bun in the oven looking down the barrel of everything in his life about to change and it'll save you at least 10 grand or if you spend the same amount of money you'll get a car with so many more features than the poverty pack SUV that costs the same. So to me, that is the number one selling point with the new Serato. If you really like driving, stretch up a little bit and buy the GT. It's as hot as you ever really need to really enjoy a drive on a twisty road once in a while with mum and the kids at home and they'll never know you've been having a fang, you know. Just make sure that the kiddie seats are still upright when you park the car. Pro tip, okay? Look, thanks very much for your time. It's just coming up for 20 minutes to 2 here in the knee of Sid on Friday the 11th of June. Thank you so much for taking part in the live stream. I hope it's helped one way or the other. I hope you've been shouting at the screen telling me to shut up up a little bit every live stream needs a good hater after all so anyway thanks a lot that's it for me i am